Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the Troxell Podcast. My name is Evan Troxell. In this episode, I speak with Alvin Huang. He is a Los Angeles-based architect. He's the founder and design principal of Synthesis Design and Architecture, otherwise known as Synthesis DNA. And he is the director of graduate and post-professional architecture and an associate professor at the University of Southern California School of Architecture. And really, he specializes in the integrated application of material performance, emergent design technologies, and digital fabrication in contemporary architectural practice. His work spans all scales, ranging from high-rise towers and mixed-use developments to temporary pavilions and even bespoke furnishings. Alvin and I spend quite a bit of this conversation talking about architectural education in the midst of a pandemic. Not only how the mechanics of coursework has changed, but more fundamentally on how it is changing for a changing profession. Uh, I don't want to get too much into it here in the intro. I'd rather just have you listen to it. Alvin spends a lot of time kind of deconstructing what they're thinking about and their approach to delivering that education right now. I think this is a really interesting topic because it is a reoccurring one on this podcast, and that's really around the changing of the profession and how COVID-19 is actually forcing that to happen much faster than it would happen without the scenario that we find ourselves in. And before we jump into the conversation, I want to apologize in advance. The recording quality didn't turn out as great as it usually is. And uh, that was because of one pesky little switch in my recording software that I didn't realize had been flipped. So for the next few episodes, unfortunately, the quality isn't quite up to my standards. I hope that that doesn't really bother you, and we'll just get through this together. Thanks, 2020, for one more thing. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alvin Huang. It's good to talk to you. It's been a while, right? Yeah. It's, I think the last time we saw each other was at the Tech Plus conference, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, obviously, a ton of crazy has happened since then. Um, but like you personally, too, quite a bit has changed, right? You Did you go full-time at USC? Um, I was always full-time at USC. Okay. Um, and uh, I was uh, tenured. Well, I'm tenured, so I'm the role was always a uh, kind of joint teaching slash research role, right, like right. creative practice slash research role. Uh-huh. Um, but then now uh, the, the role has expanded to become the director of graduate and post-professional architecture as well. Okay. And so now I would say the role is also more administrative. Okay. Does it take up a, a lot more of your time now? Um, yes and no. Like, uh, I would say the, the, the teaching has is reduced the research and creative practice is still there. And that's more, you know, my, my parallel life of being a practitioner and, you know, the, the type of work that my practice type tends to engage in tends to be more on the kind of experimental research side of things. Yeah. But then also the administrative side of things I would say is, has been um, a bit of a learning curve. Like it's something that I, you know, I've been in academia for uh, close to, you know, a decade and uh, none of that has been as an administrator. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, I would say no different than in practice, right? Like when, you know, you spend 
the bulk of your career actually in the trenches designing and, and working on projects and then start having to look at how to run the practice. Yeah. It's, it's a slightly different role and suddenly you start realizing all the decisions that you had questioned before because you're looking at them in isolation relative to the project that you're working on yeah. or the sort of individual uh, kind of perspective of you as the designer rather than let's say financial health of the practice or the you know human resources issues of the firm right and you throw in covid and the pandemic and systemic racism and the rest of 2020 and that's been like a real kind of i think a, a different version of thinking about how to administer a, a program than previously it's a real design problem <laughs> Yeah, it is. And, With stakes and that, for so many other people, right? I mean, that, that right. to me is what, what kind of sets this apart from from practice is that you're you're talking about, you know, whether you think of it at the top of the pyramid or the bottom of the pyramid or whatever, like it, you know, an upside down pyramid. It's like it's like things will branch out from here. Whatever is is talked about, thought about, discussed, implemented, and you've got it's going to branch out with all the people who take that and run with it as like a foundation for their career. That's mm-hmm. interesting. It's a, it's an interesting design problem. And I, I was, you know, I, I'm sure that there's a lot of politics and stuff that go along with that on the administrative side. I mean, that's one thing when I was teaching at Cal Poly was something that I intentionally steered away from because like you, like I, I had another full-time job as well and it wasn't, it wasn't the only thing. So um, I can only imagine what that's like when you, when you get, I don't know, is it is it strictly architecture in your department or is it like an environmental design? Well, the depart- the, the School of Architecture has uh, multiple, uh, they're not departments, but we have different programs. So there's the architecture program, there is the uh, Masters of Landscape Architecture, Masters of Historic Conservation, and the Masters of Building Science. Um, I'm the director of Masters of Architecture program, so graduate and post-professional architecture only. Um, but that is one of the things I'm working on is uh, expanding the program to include uh, a Masters of Advanced Architectural Research in uh, urban design or city design, uh, one in kind of performative design, and uh, one in uh, a kind of conservation and uh, social activism that's awesome. I mean, and, and I've heard kind of similar things from, um, and her name is escaping me at the moment. Maybe it'll come back to me, but, uh, the, the Dean at Woodbury, it, it seems like, a you know, at the school of architecture. Yeah. Ingalil. And, and it's, it's one of those things where now more than ever, I, I see it happening and I'm really excited is that, um, there's 10, there looks like there's been a shift or there is a shift happening towards preparing students and for, for a, a future that's different than we've ever prepared them for before. It, it seems to me that, you know, for for the most part, the architectural education is to train people for the current and past versions of what it's like to practice architecture. And now it seems like there's an active developmental strategy toward preparing them for this future that we are in the midst of designing. I mean, we if, if nothing else from 2020, we can see that it'll never be the same. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the things that maybe right now is such a unique moment in the sense of, you know, I was on a, a Zoom session the other day, a presentation with a bunch of faculty, um, 
I teach a class called ARC 409 where it's really uh, something that we've used as a chance to kind of create conversations. It's just a discussion course, but it's one where it's basically so that the students can have discussions that they normally would be having like in non-class time Mm -hmm. but now because the only chance to engage is in class time we created a class which (laughs) we created a class we we created a class that was just to talk that's meta (laughs) yeah (laughs) so it's basically just almost like a weekly therapy session yeah i bet and uh one of the faculty you know we just talked with uh marco sanchez um his work deals a lot with uh you know kind of social issues and he gave a part of in part of that conversation. He said, you know, he's been teaching for I don't remember how many years, like 10, 15 years. And, you know, every year he tells his students how, you know, they will be part of the change of the future and how this moment is, is uh, architecture is evolving. And, cha- and he said he had an admission, which is he never believed it. Wow. He, he said it was always something he said to students to motivate them and to get them to think about the work and try to get them to engage with it but he said this is the first year he's ever believed it Interesting. and that now we are in this moment that i think uh is very clearly what just not just architecture just kind of societal change whether it's because of you know a post pandemic society or a post systematic racism society or even a kind of post environmental uh collapse society mm. thinking about how the intersection of technology and culture and the things that let's say the soft tissue of, of society versus the, the the hard fabric of the built environment starts to have to really work together. Yeah. You know, I've been reading this book, uh, Sapiens. Yeah. Which, yep. which is a pretty amazing book. I I'm not at all finished. I'm only like maybe a couple hundred, 300 pages in, but it's really been making me think a lot about, acceleration and like how our society or how our world is changing at a pace that is exponentially greater than it's ever changed before Mm -hmm. and we have this kind of weird moment now where let's say as Yuval talks about in the book you know it's only in the last 10,000 years even though we've been on the planet for millions of years that humanity's had any sort of real impact on the planet and then it's only it's only in the last you know 500 or 600 or so years that we've become like this destructive force mm-hmm. and then now the the rate of change that's happening you know you could argue the window between like so this is my conclusion not his but i've been thinking about this like that the change is so rapid right now that that window between like if if you think about with uh just politics or research or academia or practice there's this window now between the seasoned experienced professional Mm -hmm. and that person being obsolete is a really narrow window now Mm -hmm. right like it's it's super narrow and we've gotten to this point where like you're at the top of your game but you blink and suddenly the game has passed you and you know we see we very clearly are seeing this in in this current election like looking at you know the two candidates on stage it's actually a little bit hard to look at yeah i this stuff that you're being kind of influenced to to rethink how things have been taught before i mean that's kind of where this comes back to right is is how do you adjust 
the how do you adjust a curriculum in a an established school of architecture to address the type of change that is being seen to enable students to be successful in this environment that we are seeing change before our eyes as soon as they're out the door or or maybe even while they're still there because to me yeah. like when when you say that was it mark he was saying that the first time he's believed it um mm-hmm. i mean that to me now it, there's urgency there right there's like right. there's urgency to say like we have to change and we have to change right now and we have to change on many levels that are interwoven right and and it's complicated and it matters now more than ever so like what are you guys doing to i mean Obviously, you're having these conversations. You're having these these court, the, like you said, these therapy sessions. Um, like, is it is it a real heavy feeling, um, or is it a feeling of optimism and opportunity, or uh, all of the above? I would say all of the above. Like, I mean, I think one of the things that I keep telling students and faculty that we need to remember is that. Um, you know, we've the world has experienced a pandemic before, and you know, if you look at the you know, Spanish flu of 1917, it was a global pandemic, didn't have the same sort of, uh, like, we weren't globally connected the way we are now. So it didn't, there wasn't the same sorts of conversations around it that exist now. But it did, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, actually have a direct effect on architecture. And, And you can actually trace the origins of modernism to that pandemic. And it may not be the fundamental basis of modernism, but it was very, very clearly an influence in, in modernism and in terms of beginning to think, rethink the way we organize the city, the way we rethink architecture, the way architecture in, uh, kind of was starting to reduce itself into a far more uh, minimalist and you could argue more sterile environment um, that was directly related to a, a pandemic or even thinking about like the black plague in England where you know the, the way they rethought cities and began to introduce public space and public parks for the benefit of, of the people to you know particularly East London where you know Victoria Park was near where I used to live in London and you know its legacy was because of the black plague uh, as to why that park even existed at all. And we're at this moment now where all of these things are happening and whether it's the you know pandemic or it's the systemic racism or the environmental crisis. And I keep telling students that and faculty that this is the moment where they can actually be at the forefront of thinking about how to do something different mm-hmm. because they're in the environment that's actually asking them to speculate yeah. where when you're in practice nobody's asking you to speculate right you're, you're you're being asked to deliver and when you're being asked to deliver you can't go beyond the known right because nobody can take that risk mm-hmm. but when you're in school you can actually speculate and provoke and maybe one of the things i talk about a lot with students is the fact that speculation in many cases might relate a little bit like it does in like if we think about it less like uh, speculation as let's say fiction but if we think about it more like uh, provocation and the, the way let's say the car industry does with concept cars or the fashion industry does with the runway you know concept cars are never going to be on the sales floor and what's on the runway at paris fashion week is not going to end up on the rack at H&M. But 
they very clearly both situations, whether a concept car or, you know, kind of avant-garde fashion influences the things that start to show up on the sales floor or on the rack. Yeah. It's like a necessary part of the process to actually change how you think about approach or outcome. Mm -hmm. Right. And that there's always this kind of trickle down effect. I mean, not talking economics, but I am talking about like how ideas can start off really big and then they start to filter down. Right. And, you know, I think a, a really good place to look at that, you know, and I keep telling students that as well as in film, right? And if you think about film as a kind of medium that, you know, film or books or any sort of authored reality rather than a, a, a you know, kind of documented reality mm-hmm. where authorship is always contextual. And when I say contextual, I don't mean it in the way that we normally do in architecture where we're thinking about site and location and urban fabric and things like that. But I mean more so in the sense of con- like, let's say intellectual, ideological, sociopolitical context. And if we look at, let's say films that were made in the sixties or films that were made in the eighties or films that were made in the eighties in communist China versus films that were made in the eighties in, you know, uh, Reaganomics America, we can very clearly see the sort of, ideological context as being different and how they respond to that context and what the film is as a sort of, let's say, uh, Blade Runner, for instance, in the 1980s uh, as a critique of the 1980s, right? And it is a critique of Reaganomics. It is a critique of corporate America. It is a critique of the separation between you know, uh, world cultures where, you know, that was the, the moment when Japan was rising as a world power. And in that film, the kind of second language of the city of Los Angeles was a mixture between Japanese and Spanish. Mm-hmm. And there's these uh, sort of speculations that are actually cultural commentaries. But now the way we can think of these cultural commentaries in architecture might be a little bit more uh a little less on the the fictional side of making them as a, a commentary, but we can actually look at them as uh, more solution driven and thinking about okay, if these are the issues, how can we rethink them to frame more interesting problems to design for? And I think one of the things that I really have a lot of interest in is how architecture or design is, let's say, the way I see it the best design comes from the best, not from the best solutions, but from the best problems. And the best design projects are those that actually present a more interesting problem than the one that they were given. Yeah. So when, when you came to my course and you lectured, you talked about a structural engineer that you worked with that kind of had that kind of tasty quote. Can you, can you tell us what that is? Yeah, so he's one of my mentors, a gentleman by the name of Hanif Kara. He teaches at Harvard Graduate School of Design and also has a practice in London called AKT, um, Adams Kara Taylor. And I spoke with him on a at a conference called uh, Digital Architecture. And uh, it was the first talk I'd ever given, public talk. And uh, at the end, it was a panel discussion. Um, he had asked, somebody had asked him what the difference was between a great architect and a great engineer. And uh, he kind of jokingly said, you know, great engineers come up with uh, great solutions. And he kind of elbowed me and said and chuckled and said, you know, great architects come up with great problems to solve. That's and awesome. 
like he said it as a joke, but I, I really was like, that's actually exactly it. Yeah. You know, like, like the engineer doesn't question why there's a cantilever in the first place. They solve the cantilever. The architect questions why we should have a cantilever or should not have a cantilever, you know, and, and why is it important to have a cantilever? You know, so the structural solution is a response to an architectural question, right? like an architectural provocation. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I love that quote because it, it kind of reframes the idea of, of how we work even it's, it's, I think we've gotten far away from that. And I guess it's something I wanted to talk to you about today was kind of the importance of R and D and the importance of this, this kind of finding these opportunities in architecture to potentially push boundaries. Maybe, maybe you will, maybe you won't, but I know that's, that's something that, that you've done a lot of at Synthesis. I mean, I love how you post another failed competition. I love that. I think that that is, is so self-aware, right? That like we did it anyway. Um, and, right. and, and so I wanted to kind of get your take on why that is so important to you. And it seems like this is kind of working its way into the curriculum. Um, another question I have is maybe a, a tangent from that is like how, adaptable is the curriculum how flexible is it during a time when um things do need to be changed um to prepare people for the new future um but but getting back to this idea of of the necessity of r&d and the necessity of kind of the 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 exploration that you're on Mm -hmm. um where tell me about that like where does that come from where has it led you why is it still important to you? Um, because we see so many firms today with there's so much aversion to risk, and and that risk even comes with how we spend our time on something that may, like you said, like like car companies still do concept cars mm-hmm. for a purpose. Like it's very purposeful R and D, right? They're and they're putting out products, and and it's different than architecture. I'm not trying to say it's the same, but. They're doing it on purpose so that it will, they will come up with innovation because innovation doesn't happen in a vacuum, doesn't happen by itself. Like it's still purposeful towards a, towards a, an end. So, like, how does that fit into architecture? Why have you purposefully integrated that into your your practice and potentially the curriculum that you guys are working on? Yeah, so, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is as i mentioned before this sort of intersection between uh, technology and culture and i think that for me that's where architecture exists is at that intersection um, where technology and culture merge and i think because of that we can you know let's say look at this current moment as a moment where culture and technology are almost synonymous where the the way that we actually in the way we actually produce culture is technological. Like there, there's no way to separate it. And the only, we, the only ways we're able to exist as a culture are because through technology, right? So like if this pandemic had happened even 15 years ago or maybe even 10 years ago, like we'd be in a very different situation. Sure. You know, like, like if we didn't have Zoom, if we didn't have Amazon Prime, if we didn't have Instacart and, you know, uh, all, all these different platforms or social, you know, like, Google Drive, all these ways that we're actually sharing information and, and uh, connecting to one another. But then if we think about that, how that might relate towards, you know, architectural innovation as well, 
you know, whether it's been because of, uh, you know, the invention of uh, the elevator by Otis or uh, the mass production of glass and steel that kind of spurned, you know, the industrial revolution and, and modernism or even going so far back as like uh, Brunelleschi's invention of constructed perspective. There's always been these technological innovations that were paradigm shifts in terms of how arched, like you could almost look at all of those as a BC moment, like before and after, mm-hmm. you know, from that point on, everything changed. And we are now at this moment of, of, of like saying that, you know, the, the rapid rate of change that's happening in the world and society and culture uh, means that. You know, if you're not keeping up with those innovative changes, but even more so, maybe if you're not thinking about what the next one will be and what its effects will be or how to think about how to, you know, think about the ongoing ramifications of what the the current ones are, then you're actually, you know, becoming obsolete. And I, I think academia is one of those places and architecture being one of those places where by nature, we are a forward-thinking profession, mm-hmm. right? By by nature, like I would say, another one of my quotes, favorite quotes, and I think it was in that talk that I gave to your class as well, is a quote from uh, Florian Eidenberg, where he he says that architecture is one of the few remaining spaces that exists for you to imagine alternatives, mm-hmm. right? Like the actual act of design, the actual act of architecture, if you really reduce it to its very essence, is about imagining alternatives whether those are physical alternatives like for a site that site could be different and it could have a building on it what does that building look like that's the creation of architecture or at a much larger scale at a city or at a softer scale as a sort of way for people to think about their collective futures or the, the collective ability to exist on this planet and i think that's where i i feel like you know, this idea of R&D is really something that, let's say, coming from other industries, if you think about like what a car company or a shoe company or a computer company or any of those industries spends annually on R&D, their revenues are mostly going to try to make themselves better the next version around rather than replicating what they've been doing previously. And the goal is always to be multiple steps ahead rather than trying to play catch up. Um, And I think that's something that I'm a a big advocate for. And I think in architecture, both, I would say the reality is historically my work on that has been more on the technological side or on the, um, you know, let's say from the, whether it's from the the computing side or on the fabrication side. Um, And now I would say that what I'm beginning to think a lot about is that, you know, going back to those issues of of cultural context or, you know, kind of soft context, my interest in those things as technology and computation and fabrication really stemmed from an era in architecture, let's say my emergence as a young graduate and professional and practicing architect happened in a moment when there was, uh, let's say, a surplus in world economies and stability in the world that afforded us to be able to think about things that were innovative for technological reasons. Now we're operating in a world that is at a deficit in, you could argue economic, but I would say more so in, in social, cultural 
conditions and those move to a, a higher priority. So I'm not losing interest in the technology. I would say I'm gaining interest in the social and cultural conditions that are mapped onto or mapped out of technology in terms of being able to you know, think about how technology has cultural ramifications, uh, how technology is filtered in the public sphere, how uh, technology and algorithms can be biased, um, how, uh, let's say, the, the systems of architecture. And this goes back to like rethinking the curriculum. I think one of the things that is a struggle, both for myself and my faculty, is that we can only teach what we've been taught. And we've been taught in a way that maybe some of us don't want to continue to teach. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you've been watching this, but I've been with my kids. We've really gotten into the, the, the Cobra Kai TV show. Oh, I've seen on it, Netflix. But I watch it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's a fascinating sort of like, OK, one, I will say it's very predictable and it's very cheesy and it's a lot of fun mm-hmm. as a kind of re retake on the whole karate kid series and and projecting into you know the current condition but really the core of that that show is about this kind of disjuncture between let's say the 80s and now and uh, a karate instructor that is born and raised and educated in the 80s and has particular social norms about the way he treats people and how those are, are related towards a millennial generation that doesn't share those same values and, uh, you know, now we're, we're kind of dealing with that in a way in every, I guess, industry or discipline, right? Like we can't talk about things the way we used to, or we realize that, you know, like if we look back at a John Hughes film from the 80s now, all the stuff that was super popular and we thought was fun and, and everything like actually is totally socially unacceptable now. Yeah. Doesn't quite fit anymore. <laughs> right. You know, and, and we have uh, an issue right now where, let's say, we didn't realize it, but let's say the canon of architecture was defined and authored by an entire, entirely dominant white male perspective that has established the criteria for how all architecture should be measured mm. in, in Western eyes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I took a group of students on a tour of uh Venice Beach, walking tour of Venice Beach to go look at, uh, you know, early projects of the L.A. school. So Tom Main, uh, Frank Gehry, Frederick Fisher, Eric Owen Moss, a, a bunch of, of really, really great projects, really phenomenal projects that were like indicative of a particular moment in time. And as we were giving, doing the tour, I turned and said something to the students and I looked at them as I, I just realized, I was like, well, we're about to go see a group of buildings all by old white men. Mm-hmm. And I just realized that literally not one of you will ever grow up to be an old white man. Yeah. And it doesn't diminish the value of these projects that they were done by old white men, but there is a, an issue of them being able to relate to the possibility of themselves ever being able to achieve those heights. Mm-hmm. And so you know, representation does matter. And I think that's something that we are trying to address is like, let's say issues of the canonical versus the non-canonical. And so one of the things I've asked my faculty to do is that when they give a reading list of of texts, it's not a mandate, but it's an ask that if they can, whenever they present a canonical text, they're being asked to find a non-canonical counterpoint, Mm -hmm. like something that 
can go with that text that doesn't necessarily fall into the same cat that comes from a different viewpoint. And this process is basically me asking the faculty and asking myself to re-educate ourselves. Let's pause for a moment right here and talk about our episode sponsor, Layer App, the must-have app for Revit users. Are you tired of digging for project photos, files, and field data days, if not months, after it's captured? That's the power of Layer. Layer takes all your project-related data, photos, and files and makes them accessible with the click of a button right in Revit. Find out more and start your free 14-day trial at layer.team slash troxel. That's L-A-Y-E-R dot team slash T-R-X-L. By the way, if you want to listen to episode 280 of my friend Mark LePage's Entree Architect podcast, you can hear Mark's interview with Zach Soflin, the architect turned software developer who created Layer App. Get your free trial at layer.team slash T-R-X-L. And now let's jump right back into the conversation with Alvin Huang. You know, going back to your where you kind of started this this line of conversation is with the environment in which things are happening needs to mm-hmm. be like it, it it produces a certain result and so it sounds to me like you guys are kind of actively trying to design an environment conducive of the type of change that needs to happen absolutely and uh, the, the environment part's a really important part of this because you know as, as you know right now like we're all virtual yeah and that i would say is the biggest loss of being virtual is the the culture or the environment yeah, right like sure. the, the fact that my students literally you know like if the, i've been doing a series of kind of conversations with students recently just to kind of you know you're no longer able to walk the halls and just stop somebody and go hey how's, how's it going you know yeah. what, what's class like yeah so now, now you actually have to like set aside time and right. say hey can, can we meet and i think a big part of that has been trying to figure like in the common denominator I'm getting from all the students is that almost to a T all of them think that class is going really well. Like they're, or they're, let's say their projects are going really well and that they're, they're able to produce, but what they miss and, and what they feel has really suffered is their ability to connect, Yeah, you know, and, and have, let's say conversations with their faculty that are not during class time or that are, random rather than formal yeah or whether it's with their their classmates or you know it it, it's translates directly to practice as well right it the 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 things that people choose to do with their life are are you know this the outcomes that we're seeing happen producing work is not the only thing that happens at work Mm -hmm. Producing projects in school is not the only thing that happens in university. And it's, it's in fact, I mean, when you look back on, I mean, my education, my formal education, when I look back on it, the things that you remember are not necessarily the projects. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all of that other stuff that happens in between, right? Like it is the in between. They say like on the tombstone, right? You got a beginning date and an end date and the dash is the, the in between is, is your whole life. Right. And, and, I th- I think there's a lot of truth to that kind of hokey statement, right? It's like when you take that away, um, 
as as a key ingredient to the environment of um, developing people who hopefully won't go into this field and just be followers, but actual leaders, that is a huge piece that's missing. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, now that, that piece is one that, in a way, we have to... Fabricates, yeah, <laughs> fabricates, yeah, fabricates the wrong word, but yeah, force might be a, a more apt way of putting it, right? Like you have to, you actually have to create it. Like it can't create itself anymore. Yeah, that's that is a, a very, that's a weird problem to have to deal with that nobody saw coming, right? I mean, because yeah, we can continue to get our work done and we can continue to connect on purpose, but those unintentional connections have so much to do with culture. Like again, bringing it back to culture, um, mm-hmm. the culture part of technology plus culture and in, in, in that intersection and where architecture happens, there's a huge deficit there. Yeah. You know, I think maybe that's also one of the things that right now is in terms of the way we're, we're looking at all of this, the other thing is to take it as an opportunity rather than a, loss yeah you know and one of the things i keep telling students is if they look at it the right way this pandemic situation is not going away and even when it resumes back to normal the reality is it won't be normal the way we remember it it's very clear that let's say the kind of work from home situation actually has a lot of benefits not to say that it uh doesn't have cons that go with it, but I suspect a lot of offices are going to have a much more flexible strategy about working from home in the future yeah. and working working remotely. And in terms of reducing their, their footprint and reducing their overhead costs, but also giving people more flexibility in their lives. But you pair that with the fact that, you know, in let's say for me as a personal example, you know, in my 20 plus years of experience in the architectural industry, maybe 5% of the projects I've ever worked on happened to be in the same location that I was in. Yeah. Like the, the, the projects just happen uh, always somewhere else, which means you're always remotely. And now because of this forced condition, it's become far more commonplace to work uh, remotely but we are now seeing that you can have a very specific skill set which is targeted towards that, right? And and that's something where now maybe going back to the previous comment of, of obsolescence and, and rapid change, where we are seeing one of the like fundamental issues, and I see this like with my children's teachers, my kids are in grade school. Like the younger the teacher is now in grade school, the more effective they are. Mm-hmm because they actually are able to think creatively about how to teach online and it's how not, to, yeah, it's not just muscle memory. Right. And, and it's not more than muscle memory. The previous because seasoned teachers in uh, elementary school are using muscle memory that relates to a different set, a different exercise, mm-hmm. right? Like now you're saying, okay, well, the, the exercise is no longer in person. So your muscle memory is not the same. Like you're trying to force, mm-hmm the physical classroom into a virtual space. Right. Instead of rethinking it. Yeah. And instead of saying, okay, how do I teach in a virtual space? 
and the, the younger teachers are being really creative about it and are able to, you know, find apps and find, you know, different strategies and, and kind of different techniques. And they know how to use breakout rooms and they know how to set things up so that there's uh, kind of uh, interactive moments where the kids are working together on the screen. And those that don't are actually just using Zoom as a lecture delivery device. <laughs> yeah, a lecture delivery device that is highly ineffective. And some when students are checked out, they're checked out. Um, and if some to some, like even things like muting and unmuting themselves is a challenge. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we we grew up in a in a time when a lot of our education in architecture was down a certain path, right? I mean, it was it was 100% focused on design and we a lot of the education of an architect is left up to, you know, being a professional, working in the professional environment. And now we're in a situation where that's very difficult, right? For to have those unintentional, you know, learning through osmosis of being in an open office, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of different examples of how that happens. Are you guys doing anything or, or at least preparing people for the mindset of you're going to have to go out and find this information um, and you're going to have to be purposeful about gaining it? Or how are you guys kind of addressing that issue with students who are not going to be working in, at least in the immediate future, in an office environment and they are going to be kind of on their own a lot more than they would have been, you know, five years ago, two years ago, one year ago? Well, I mean, one thing that I'm I'm personally saying to students is to think about the kind of not just the restrictions or the constraints. And I, I would say this is something that I go back to design, right? So if, if we think about Joshua Prince Ramus and Rex and his comment or statement that uh, design is about turning constraints into opportunities, if we look at the kind of constraints of, of this current condition and what it limits us to, but also more importantly, what it opens doors to right now, my students can theoretically say that they could get internships anywhere in the world right? from where they're sitting. Absolutely. And I told, I've told them that, you know, I definitely don't believe in working for free. I think that, uh, you know, our, our profession, our industry has a, a horrible history of undervaluing itself because of that. Mm -hmm. But if there ever was a moment where working for free could actually benefit you or work in your advantage, right now working for free is probably a little bit different than it used to be. Right? Like you could actually reach out to somebody and say, look, I can't find a job anywhere. I can use my time to work with you while I continue to work for a job but it's not giving up the ability to continue to look for stuff because I'm actually at home and I can, you know, I don't have to move to another city to work for an office that I've really admired for a long time. I can do that remotely, but also I can do things like informational interviews or I can, you know, in part from working for free, you can actually do things that are reaching out and networking and connecting to people in ways that you've never like, let's say a zoom conversation now is totally normal and easy to to swallow of somebody reaching out and saying can i zoom with you for 20 minutes just want to chat yeah whereas you know if i got that same request six months ago or eight months ago i'd be like no you know it's i don't want to have to go find time to go sit down in front of a computer and talk to you um but <laughs> now it's just 
<laughs> yeah, now it's literally all I do, right? Like I, I'm, I'm on Zoom all day, every day. Um, right. This is actually a, a rare occurrence for me not to be on a different platform. Yeah. But I think there are ways that you can think about this and, you know, that they can have, let's say, also the ability to, let's say, do more freelance or, or consulting work at this moment where, you know, you can take on lots of roles without having to commute between them or, or shuffle between them. Like right now, my, my teaching at USC and my administrative role at USC and that of my practice and my role as a parent all happen from one chair. Yeah. You know, in one click, I'm doing one or the other. Right. Or sometimes all three at the same time. Yeah. So what do you do to take a break from that? <laughs> <laughs> or is this just heads down, man? There's too much to do. To be very honest, I, I, I go to my room and I close the door and I lay on the bed by myself. <laughs> Some me time, yeah. Yeah, like uh, that, that's, uh, I have to say, like, that is both the, the blessing and the curse of the situation, right? Like the commute yes. has, the commute has changed for the, for the better, but the uh, distance from the work has changed for the worse. Yeah. Um, so like now, whether, whichever one of those roles it is, like, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, the desk is right there. The computer is right there. Like I'm like when my wife comes home, theoretically I'm off, but not really. Yeah. You know, um, we are in a world of, of complete connection at all moments. And that to me is kind of that, that is a, a tough thing to deal with for sure. Mm -hmm. I think people are trying to learn how to deal with that and trying to experiment with ways to deal with that. Um, because because you have the ability to be always on and always connected, right? Device on your wrist, device in your ears, like computers in your ears with your AirPods, right? You've got your Apple Watch on. You've got your iPhone in your pocket. Uh, you've got your iPad next to the couch. You've got your laptop on your desk, which could go anywhere with you. We have to figure out the boundary situation because before it was really, really clear, right? I'm in the car. I'm not supposed to do all this other stuff supposed to be right. concentrating on this other thing which is a great way to disconnect right your mind mm -hmm. may may not stop going crazy but at least your body is not following suit right like it, it's still doing right. something else and and there's pro a little bit of of mental health happening there um i think that's probably one of the, the things that we're seeing a lot and i'm wondering too are you guys doing anything with the students kind of getting back to that aspect of this where are, you're actively kind of coaching them on this mental health aspect of it because the workahol the workaholism that also is you know something we've always seen in architecture um, is even more uh, something that has to be kind of addressed right now than ever. That's actually something that, like, let's say the university has a lot of initiatives in terms of trying to provide outlets for them. Uh, also providing counseling for those that might be dealing with depression um, and providing kind of alternative uh, venues for socialization um, happening more at a university level. Yeah. Uh, from the School of Architecture standpoint and more specifically to graduate architecture, which is my domain, I would say like that's something we're currently in the progress in the process of trying to figure out. Like uh, I started recently doing um, what I'm calling it is kind of director's office hours where it's just a, a one-hour session a week that whoever wants to show up can show up, mm -hmm. and we just we just talk. Yeah. 
you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about architecture or about the school. It could just be about what's going on. You know, um, I think what another thing I'm interested in, in doing and uh, Doris, who's uh, the undergrad chair, ha has been looking at is uh, like a book club or a movie club, something that would just be for students to get together and talk about something else. Yeah. And then, you know, that's something that I, goes back to the previous question, which is like, how do we create this culture and, and support? And I think, you know, the students are craving that. that that's for sure. And I, I would say, like, the formal talks, like the lectures and all of those things, like, we went from having none of it to now having, uh, like, let's say when the shutdown first happened, it was like all of the, those series went away. And now it's actually more the opposite of there's so many virtual series to go and you can go to lectures anywhere yeah. in the world. Yeah, conferences are all free. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and all these events are, are constant which there's a benefit and a, a, a bad part of that as well, which is, you know, the benefit being that you have access to all this stuff now. The, the, the you know, bad part now is like, it's, a flood. it's, yeah, it's like white noise. Yeah. Hard to prioritize or mm -hmm. find, find the signal in that noise. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's something that you said earlier that I wanted to go back to when talking about how you talked about this kind of narrow window of obsolescence. Uh, mm -hmm. within the, the profession. And on some level, I think that's kind of a good thing um, because it's going to allow for new ideas to push up through the strata of our profession. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what a lot of students, you know, come to a quick realization once they graduate and they get out into the, the real world. I mean, we I don't know if you read that recent um letter to a young architect that kate wagner posted um, online it's uh, i'll send you a link to it but basically she talks about how you know as an architecture critic um she you know she's pretty famous on twitter as mcmansion hell um and she oh yeah, yeah. she had the blog about you know where she would diagram the basically red line up these zillow postings of mcmansions and and i mean she's a fantastic writer fantastic thinker and uh, and so she wrote this letter to young architects, and it's a collection of letters, and hers kind of stood out to me just because I, I know who she is, number one. But number two, she has a different take. She's not an architect. She's a critic. And she talked about how working with students is her favorite thing to do because that is the time, and you mentioned this earlier too, where students think about what architecture is and can be more than any other time rather than you know when you go out and work in the quote-unquote real world and there are risks and there are you know there's aversion to risk and there's you know this is how we do it kind of mentality not not necessarily coming at it from a possibility standpoint um and and so students have to grapple with that fairly quickly when you go work in a firm is that like you are now at the bottom of the totem pole when when you're in school you work in a silo unto yourself for the most part, mm -hmm. right? And so, like, I, I kind of see this idea that you posed earlier as this narrow window of obsolescence as a potential opportunity. Um, and I wonder if, if firms can stop thinking about students as software operators and more as idea generators. Um, and that, to me, is an important shift that the profession needs to make uh, to inject fresh ideas of, like you said, where, um, you know, us as 
Gen X have a certain viewpoint that we were in the cultural petri dish of our time that doesn't necessarily equate to uh, the experiences of millennials today and being okay with that um, and actually being really accepting of it to inject kind of these new ideas and new ways in which the world actually operates and will continue to because those are the generations that are going to come into leadership positions more and more. Uh, this whole idea around that narrow window of obsolescence to me is potentially useful. <laughs> Maybe. Oh, I, 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 I see it as totally useful, right? Like, and I think, like I said, I go back to politics as the biggest example of that, right? Like I just keep thinking about like how different that debate would have been last night if it were, yes. you know, AOC on the other side Absolutely. In, front, in, in front of Trump or if it had been Harris or, you know, like the issues that the, the world is facing right now are like require fresh views on them mm-hmm. and, and require rethinking rather than retreading. Yeah. And I would like to see that kind of thinking penetrate our profession in a much deeper level yeah. as well. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that's something where, you know, maybe going back to, you know, your comment about uh, seeing young people as software operators is something is part of the problem, because I think one of the, the things that, you know, I'm a big proponent of, and you've seen through the talks that I've given, is that I don't see software as a, it's a tool, but it's a tool for thinking rather than a tool for doing. And and the doing part is it allows you to execute those thoughts, but you're thinking through the technology. Like, like you're, you're, the technology is helping you generate ideas. And, and I think, you know, we, we now have the technology that can help us. And, and so those ideas aren't just about, let's say, the, the literal form of buildings, but also the things that formulate the form, right, in terms of, the ideas that drive them or in the case of the ability to visualize data or dig into data or, or connect to, to data. You know, I think one of the things that we don't do enough of in architecture, and I think that's going back to my interest in computation is thinking about how real data can be used as kind of a criteria for not producing a uh, algorithmic process that is a literal translation of data, right? Because I think there's always a misnomer about uh, designing with data that you're basically just materializing a graph. Mm-hmm. But that data is actually something that can be steered and curated and is something that you can pull ideas from and begin to understand connections between different things, not just as a literal representation of generic numbers. And I think that's something that you know, we can see very clearly that, you know, let's say the work of OMA and uh, AMO, their, their kind of research arm, mm-hmm. I think is is a group that did, has done really well in terms of being able to make very provocative arguments that are supported by data, rather than just making blanket statements or going down the route of this piece is exactly 30% bigger than that piece because it has more demand. But that you're actually beginning to think about things that are more indicative of like why something is 30% bigger because it's actually related towards, you know, it's not just something that reflects the 
consumption of space, but also is related towards the priorities that a culture has and the things that they value. And I think that's where, I guess, because of this role now, like I'm constantly spending time trying to think about like what architecture is. And, you know, previously I talked about it as the kind of intersection between culture and technology. Um, the Another recent kind of thought that's been going through my head is thinking of architecture as a materialization or expression of value systems. And so like value systems being the kind of systems of that our cultures and the context that we operate in uh, place value in or, or that we define as valuable. And obviously we are right now at a moment in society where issues of, you know, equity and diversity and justice are, are an environment are extremely valuable, more valuable than they have ever probably been in the history of mankind. And so how do we give value to those things by designing spaces that value them? Yeah. It's interesting to think about a few few things that you you just mentioned that I want to try to thread together a little bit. Um, talking about the computer as a tool for thinking um, is is an interesting kind of topic. It, it reminds me of a lesser known probably quote by Steve Jobs, which early, early on in the formation of Apple computer, he kind of put the thinking together that, that a computer is a bicycle for the brain, for the, for the brain. And it was, it, it came from a study that was done that showed, you know, basically how all different animals performed um, at their kind of peak performance level. And there was this graph of kind of like output to I can't remember if it was speed or it was something like that, right? And it, it was like, how fast can a thing go on flat ground over a distance? And, you know, they basically graphed all the different animals. And man was, was you know, decent, but nowhere near like a horse, right, or a cheetah as far as like what was possible. And And then there was an augmentation, right? Which is what you're talking about, where it's this tool for thinking. Um, and the augmentation was a bicycle, and nothing could compare to a man on a bicycle or a human on a bicycle, right? So um, that's what he started to draw the analogy of a computer being for the brain. And it be, and I think that your kind of version of that uh, tool for thinking falls right in line with that. And it, it isn't typically thought of in that way as an augmentation. It's, it's more thought of as an augmentation to production rather than an augmentation mm-hmm. to, to to the creative process or the thinking process. Right. It's, it's usually thought of as more of a, a tool for efficacy or uh, precision. Yeah. Right. So we, we, we can do things more efficiently and, and, and more precise than, than we did before. But I think really beginning to think about is now we can think things or, or draw conclusions or, or conceive of things that we couldn't have before. Yeah. So then another thing that you you just talked about as far as like architecture being an expression of value systems and being, um, I had a conversation with Reg Prentice on a previous episode of the podcast and talking about using data as a basis for design um, and how there's, there's a little bit of a blind trust going on right now because it seems the pendulum has swung in a different direction from like full creativity, right, to data driven design. Um, and to me, when you talk about architecture being an, an expression of value systems, I think that 
if we were to rely on data as the driver of design, that's very problematic because it's going to really make design dull. Um, it, it may, you may be able to point at it very easily and say, this is why it does that uh, because you have some data points to back that up. But I think one thing that makes architecture very different in the realm of like possibility is that it can express, it, it can be inspirational, right? And that isn't necessarily mm-hmm. something that you can put or, or come from a data standpoint on. Mm-hmm. And to me, when you're talking about like expressing the way that culture happens or, you know, creating space for culture to happen um, and that being a, a, and talking about kind of the, the environment in which and how important the environment is for, for things to happen and be cultivated within, um, that's a necessary ingredient. And that to me is where the training and going through the design training that we've gone through really makes it different than data-driven and algorithmic kind of outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I, I think I want to preface this by saying, like, when I say data, I, I, I'm trying to intentionally not talk about, uh, like, a data-driven thing that is a pure representation of numbers, but more beginning to interrogate and investigate how data is procured and how it's used and what how it can be curated um and i think if we think about it less uh, like you know one of the things i'm quite interested in is is the the biases of data Mm -hmm. and uh you know one of the things that we can see is that like let's say data is, is both collected and processed in a way that has to be authored Right. And so once something is authored, it inherently has a bias. Mm-hmm. And so what we can do is, is start to question the way certain things have been authored and the way that we can work with those things to either reauthor or uh, acknowledge the biases that exist in those things. And so I think I'm thinking about it less as a kind of pure performative aspect, mm-hmm. but something that can, uh, relate to a, a like be symbiotic with um an expressive aspect or a as you called it inspirational aspect or uh like that the hard versions like the hard being the data driven and the soft versions like the aspirational the inspirational the, the kind of expressive things uh can be more symbiotic where we can um try to do things like I'm working on a project in the arts district right now and it's a art gallery exhibition space and we have this fairly large double curve complex uh, geometry and a, a reference for us in this project is uh, the ancient Mayan city of Uxmal which is in the Yucatan Peninsula in, in Mexico City or not Mexico City in Mexico and uh, Uxmal has this really strong architectural motif system of, of these kind of tiled panels with symbols placed upon it. And it's very expressive and very articulate and, and the symbols have all these unique meanings. And one of the things we're doing is, is taking uh, this project and using the data of not only being able to mine a, a kind of collective set of trying to read the 
symbols that are involved in ancient Mayan culture, but trying to draw parallels between ancient Mayan cultures with other ancient civilizations. And so we're, we're actually pulling and finding uh, glyphs and symbols that come from ancient Chinese cultures, uh, ancient African cultures, ancient Greek and European cultures, uh, other native cultures, and trying to find commonalities to produce a new data set of, of these glyphs. And then we're mapping those in, against a uh, kind of recursive subdivision process, which is uh, mapping the double curved geometry of the, the surface to actually look at areas of greatest curvature and lowest curvature. And so that the areas of uh, basically so the surface subdivides itself um, based off its curvature. So we have more acute high fidelity uh, panelization areas of greater curvature and larger flatter panels in areas of lower curvature. And so the combination of those two things stops, and we by mapping those paneling systems uh, and those glyphs against that subdivision system, you get this really unique visual effect of a uh, of referring to the um, ancient Mayan uh, kind of uh, motif logic, and that is has a much larger uh, kind of cultural like connotation or, or reflection in terms of, of connecting to other cultures, but at the same time is actually highly related towards the um, kind of performative aspect of trying to rationalize that skin so that it has the fewest amount of panels possible, but the most it needs. Right. And so I think what's important is that those things are not like none, none of those things can is enough on their own to support the project. Hmm. Right. But that it's the, inner relationship between all of them and the uh, synergistic relationship between all of them that gives them its, uh, you know, ability to exist or strengthen existence. Cause I think yes. one of the things that I've been very, very conscious of in terms of formulating a lot of my positions about form and performance is that we've gone through a period of, as I said, in like pre pre-2008 of architectural excess and societal excess where, you know, there was a period in architecture where, you know, if you could design it and you had enough money, you could build it, right? It didn't really matter, whatever. You could pretty much do anything. Technology could afford it as long as the budget could support it. We're obviously not at that point anymore. Um, and so one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how we kind of connect the issue of uh, performance and form and performance being an expanded notion of performance where it's not just about utility, but also about uh, narrative and expression and inspiration and all these soft. Yeah. 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 Right. And, and so like, like every element in architecture has the possibility of, of our, our, you know, architects to dreaded letters, uh, VE, value engineering. Yes. Right? Like every, every element has the potential to be a target for that, where we can replace it with something uh, less costly or remove it outright. And I've always found that the way that you can avoid that is the more an element does more than one thing, yes, the less likely it is to be removed. Yes. Or, or replaced, Absolutely. right? And so if it's not, let's say, Disney Concert Hall, we could value engineer the form out of the building and the building would pretty much operate the way it needed to operate. Mm -hmm. 
but if you look at the work of Fry Otto or Felix Candela or Pierre Luigi Nervi or it's any so of these, yeah. yeah, yeah, like like structure and form and circulation and program and meaning and intention and light, like they're all connected. There's a depth to that. Yeah, I, I was going to say that the I've obviously found the same the same thing in practice as well. And not only is it limited to, and not to say that that's what you were intending to say, but not only is it limited to multifunctional, but also meaningful to mm-hmm. the people paying for it. <laughs> right? Right. Uh, right. Makes a, makes an enormous difference in that VE process. Right. And that in the end goes back again to value systems because it also is not only the value systems of society, but it's the value systems of your patron. Yeah. And not just yourself, right? Like that, that to me is, is something that architects could do a much better job about because it shouldn't be so much about your will of what you want to will into existence for what it's worth. But it, it's more of a, what, what are your, what meaning is this and, and to whom and that, and if it can be more than you, uh, that's a good thing. Well, and I, I think that is something that is very clear to me that at least with, let's say the current generation of students and, and um, I would say for most part, young practitioners is, is a kind of collective change of, let's say seeing architecture less as a opportunity for self-expression mm-hmm and more as an opportunity for a kind of collective expression. Yeah. There's a, there's like a civic responsibility there that I don't think we've really witnessed in the past, uh, not to this level. And, and just the level at which people kind of come out of school and are contributors to society in a much bigger way. There is like a, a civic duty and a social contract there that, that we haven't really experienced before from what I can tell. And I, I think that's one of the things that, like, I'm very, like, let's say the the identity that I'm trying to help cultivate at USC is one that says that we want to celebrate both the opportunity for the kind of civic-minded, socially conscious, community-oriented um, architecture, as well as the disciplinary-focused, uh, visionary, innovative authorship of architecture and that the two don't have to be mutually exclusive right right that saying that we you do um something that is socially minded doesn't make does not absolve it from having to be or wanting to be um high quality forward-thinking design yeah and the, and i guess to reinforce what we were just talking about the, the more integrated those things can be better chance I think there has to be successful and well regarded when it's presented to the, the public or, or whoever the user base may be. Right. Well, man, you've, you've got your, your hands full. You're doing a lot. I, I, there's something that, that I do with all my guests and I, I'm hoping that you'll entertain this is I, I ask all my guests, what's something that you do to, help yourself perform better. Do you have like a personal hack? I mean, it, it could be digital. It could be physical. It, it, there's no, no framework here for this question. It's more of just kind of like off the cuff. What, what do you do Alvin? Because you're, you've, you are jug, you're seriously juggling a lot of balls right now. What do you do to stay motivated, happy, sane, <laughs> all of the above? 
every morning I get up at, well, okay, I can't say I get up. My alarm goes off at 545. <laughs> I, hit, I, I hit snooze a few times, and then I get up and get on my Peloton. And uh, I usually do, well, usually between 8 to 10 miles every morning, but um, it's about half an hour of, of intense riding, and that's my outlet for it's the one time of the day I'm literally thinking about nothing yeah. other than trying to not die of exhaustion. <laughs> I have a Peloton too, but it's called a specialized and I go out on the, on the trail <laughs> and ride it. Yeah. And, uh, well, I, I mean, I, yeah, but yeah. we've had some bad air quality. I could totally imagine, yeah. uh, you, that thing's probably been a, a lifesaver for you. Oh, it has been. And, uh, I mean, I got it at the beginning of the shutdown. Well, I ordered it at the beginning of the shutdown. It took two and a half months to get here and it's been a lifesaver. Um, you know, I, I also cycle and I don't have a specialized of a Fuji, but I, I'm more of a road bike guy, but it's, I have to say it's very, very, very different in the sense that I can do it guaranteed every day without any interruption to my schedule. Yeah. yeah. I can see some and, big benefits there. Yeah, and and as well as the fact that I can do it in a way where I can't. Well, it's still me pushing myself, following someone else's lead, but there's somebody leading me. Where you know, like I, I don't ever, you know, when I ride, I'm just kind of riding, and I'm, you know, I ride more as an urban commuter. On the Peloton, there's somebody literally saying, "Hit these metrics," and it's motivating, shaming, sh- shaming you. <laughs> and, and, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. I find that, yeah. you know, by doing things like cycling or whatever whatever the the, the thing may be, it, it forces you to be present doing that thing. It, it is Yeah, a, absolutely. That's a I big mean, big difference. Before from, the shutdown for me it was basketball. I played basketball once a week and that was the one time every week where I focused on nothing other than what I was doing. Yeah. And that's a, that's a huge, that's a, you can't be understated how important that can be. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So is there anybody that you're listening to or reading right now? You mentioned Sapiens. Is there anything else? I'll, I'll put Sapiens in the show notes. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Um, but if there, is there anything else that you're, that's influencing you right now? Yeah, for sure. There, there is a book called The Color of Law that I'm reading right now. Uh, by Richard Rothstein, and it's a uh, kind of book about the formation of the urban fabric that we're currently living in and how uh, what we think of as uh, de facto segregation uh, is actually de jure segregation, that there's actually been, and it goes back to a lot of the things I was talking about in terms of the things that we think of now as like our actual individuals rather than systems can be traced back to a legacy of systems, you know, where we talk about, you know, we might have a racist landlord, not a racist uh, policy for uh, regulating how we rent. But if actually, if you trace it all the way back, it all started with a racist policy that got inherited and abused and used by racist individuals. And then when you take away the racist policy, the legacy of those policies still exist. Mm-hmm. That's another one I'm reading. Uh, I, I've, well, I have a stack of books that I just ordered, and they're all along those same veins. Another one by Ru- Ruha Benjamin, Race After Technology. 
which is looking at the kind of uh, biases that are in, embedded into technology. And then uh, on a more light note, uh, as I said, I've gotten recently really into Cobra Kai, the, the Netflix show with uh, about the kind of current version of Danny LaRusso versus Johnny Lawrence and the Karate Kid. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. We, we introduced our kids to Karate Kid, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago. You know, we kind of went on that 80s movie kick, Goonies, yeah. Back to the Future. Oh, yeah, we, 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 we did that too. Yeah, and Karate Kid was a favorite for us. And now I would say it's become another family favorite with Cobra Kai, where it's one where, you know, all four of us can sit there and love it for different reasons. Yeah. Interestingly enough, also an interesting reflection on society. Absolutely. Well, I'm definitely going to check that out. So last question, total softball here. Where can people follow you online, learn more about you and, and what you're up to? Uh, easiest way is on Instagram, at SynthesisDNA um, would be my handle on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, um, follow my practice at, at Synthesis Design and Architecture. And you can also follow me at a third account, which is at USC Grad Architecture, which would be... Uh, the Instagram account for the grad program at uh, USC Architecture. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man, for being so generous with your time and your thoughts. I think that there's a, there's a lot of good stuff in this episode. Um, I really appreciate you and everything that you're doing. It's uh, it's fantastic right. to catch up with you again. Likewise, as always, uh, it's great to catch up and uh, glad to see you're doing this and uh, best of luck with everything. And I'm Sure, eventually when things are back to normal, we will run into each other somewhere again and uh, can't wait till we do. Yeah, hopefully we will see you soon as well. Thanks, man. All right, take care. Once again, a big thank you to the sponsor of this episode, Layer App, the flexible database for architects that makes it easy to view photos, files, and project data right in Revit. Remember, start your free 14-day trial at layer.team slash trxl. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out and, of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.